Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Let's do it. This is Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we're talking with Aisha Brooks Lytle about the best backyard tomatoes in the whole Midwest in 1996's dark comedy, The Last Supper. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and teacher who now resides in the great state of Pennsylvania. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests who pick movies for us to watch, and then we gather up for a conversation from our perspective as pastors, as theologians, and as folks who just love movies. This week, our guest Aisha brooks Lytle has asked us to go and watch The Last Supper, and so we've done it. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask what this movie has to do with life and ministry, theology, and the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas about what you might do with the Last Supper for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be October 15th, the 19th Sunday of Ordinary Time. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, I want to introduce our guest for this week's episode, Aisha brooks Lytle. Aisha is the Minister for Mission at Wayne Presbyterian Church and the organizing pastor at The Common Place in Southwest Philadelphia. She's also a crazy good preacher. Aisha, I heard you preach a few years ago at the next conference in Atlanta, and I just about fell out of my chair. I'm so honored to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here with you guys and an honor to um, kind of take a stab at creative ways of looking at the scripture. So I'm just happy to be here with you both. So let's talk about this movie. 1996's The Last Supper, directed by Stacey Title, is not a movie with a huge modern following, but it is surprisingly resonant 20 years later. The movie takes place among a group of liberal Iowa grad students, although they never actually seem to do any real grad studenting. One night, one of their cars breaks down, and a local guy comes to the rescue, and they invite him in for dinner. But it turns out that this local is effectively a neo-Nazi and a white supremacist. He pulls a knife to make a point about masculinity, and one of our grad students ends up stabbing him through the back. After the initial shock wears off, the group eventually decides that in fact they've done the world a favor, and more to the point that they have so many more favors left to give, and so begins a scheme wherein every week they invite some radically conservative activist into their home for dinner, and then end up burying them in the backyard underneath the tomato plants. Predictably, as the movie goes on, this does spin out of control, especially as they finally confront the movie's Rush Limbaugh stand-in, who was played with delicious zeal by Ron Perlman. Aisha, this movie is a bit of a deep cut, but it's also incredibly recognizable. And, and not just because I spent two years as a grad student in eastern Iowa, probably no less liberal or self-righteous than the folks in this movie, but also because the radically divisive nature of our current political climate is so evidently on display here. But it's also a movie that doesn't obviously have a lot of moral center. I mean, dark comedies very often don't. So help me out, help us out, justify our faith. Why does The Last Supper matter for ministry in today's church? I think this movie has stuck with me. I mean, you're talking, it's 20 years old, right? So I was in my early 20s. Yes, I just put my math out there. Um, and so I was really intrigued by just, um, first, how do we see each other, right? When I think about why this matters for the church, um, you have people on different sides of um, the aisle, right? And so you've got these liberal grad students, and instantaneously, after the first killing, they become judge and jury of everyone that they invite into their home. And I'm, like, fascinated by this, that all of a sudden, you can decide 
who gets to live or die based on how they think or how you perceive how they're able to articulate how they think. And so I just, even as a younger person, and especially today, I thought, why don't we see the humanity in one another? Or when do we start to see that it's more than a few, um, it's more than just people's thoughts, right? For, for what categorizes like who they are. Meaning I'm more than how I vote or I'm more than how I think. I'm still human. And the, I mean, I, and I also love that the liberals in the story go, are just crazy. Like they, they, become, <laughs> they just go absolutely insane and actually become sick with holding up, like upholding their views becomes more important than the humanity that is around the table. And I think that in the church, we are so, we are in the, it just all, all of humanity right now to speak for where we, where we are contextually, right? So in this country, in the church and outside of the church, we label people and we judge them. And we may not physically kill them, but we kill them with our words. We kill them with how we um, isolate them or ostracize them. Um, in one scene in the movie, there's a 17-year-old girl who is, you know, taking her stance on abstinence, and they are ready <laughs> to give this kid the axe. I'm like, y'all gonna kill a kid <laughs> in the name <laughs> of, you know, what you think being over and against somebody else. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's that would be my one of the first themes for me is where where are we when it comes to making sense of our humanity? Because in today's sound bites, we just categorize each other based off of what we say. And we forget that there are actual hu complex human beings sitting at the table. I, I was reading a little bit about this movie and its kind of original reception. And I, and I found this Roger Ebert review that really struck me. Mm. And uh, he writes that he, he kind of summarizes this movie as, and I've got the quote here, he calls it a Swiftian attempt to slap us all in the face and get us to admit that our own freedoms depend precisely on those of our neighbors, our opponents, and yes, our enemies. Mm. Those who limit another's freedom of speech create a nation in which freedom can be limited, and what goes around comes around. Mm. You would think Americans would understand that, senators especially. Which is a strikingly modern quote. Right. Uh, but I wonder, it sounds a little bit to me like you are not reading this film as about the freedom of speech of the people that they invite to the table, but rather their kind of underlying humanity, their, their, their decency as children of God. And I, I ask that because it seems like a very much a live issue as we talk about who gets the right to speak what in 2017. Right. I think, um, of course you want people to have the freedom to speak, right? Like, that's why we're all here. We're having this conversation, right? The part, people in parts of the world that couldn't even do this dialogue right now and have it out to be accessed. So that's important. But I think what, what really jarred me in this movie was, was that I will, carry, I will carry out my point of view to the point of death if you do not agree with me. And this, uh, just the finality of life and death and how we are quick to, to just disregard the humanity of the other. And so honestly, to me, it's a, what is, what is healthy differentiating look like, right? And I, I, don't know what that, I don't know what that looks like in the public sphere, I'll be honest with you. But I know that we got to do a, a heck of a lot better of who we see across the table and if we don't agree with him. So one spoiler in the movie, right? The Ron Perlman's sure. character, they keep the part of their decision-making as this liberal judge and jury and murderous group is how people answer the question that if you met a young Adolf Hitler, would you kill him? And Ron Perlman's response is, no, I would talk to him, see if I could influence him. Like, cause you don't know where people will end at the, at the course of their life. And they, and that was sort of the like, oh, maybe this guy is more human <laughs> than, we, than we realized. And I think that there are more stories like that in our society where somebody connected with someone who was on the opposite side in, in a very dangerous way, but then was able to engage their humanity 
and, and to help kind of set them on a course that move them in a different direction. I think I think the the word that you used there that was so striking to me and I think appropriate for this movie too is uh, differentiated. Right. That um, that by the end of the movie there is a obsession among the group where they can't um, they can't divorce themselves from their own ideology and from and they can't see someone besides their ideology. And in some ways, those two things become totally codependent. And, mm. um, and I, as I look around at ministry, and as you look around at ministry, um, I, I wonder if, if we're not as differentiated from the political culture um, as we should be. Mm. Um, and that's a hard thing to say, because I, I don't want to um, give people justification for not caring about what's going on in the world. Right. And yet I still also want people to be free from allowing their political enemies to colonize their imagination wow. so that, you know, so that the so that Donald Trump isn't taking up all of the real estate in your brain every day. I think right. there is some value in that. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that well, while also having a spirit of antagonism or adversarialness that is um, born of the prophets, for instance, or born of what I think a biblical witness to ministry would look like. And I think you can be antagonistic without being murderous, what? too, right? I mean, right? Like, I mean, like maybe the, you it, can, it, Matt. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, I, I know mean, you're I, so I mean, mature. It, <laughs> if the movie has a kind of moral come down, it's, it's not that, that it's not this kind of bland, can't we all just get along? It's like, their strategies for opposition to these characters who are in many cases like actually bad people but their strategies of opposition to them that would not be pour them the poisoned wine at dinner right. and kill them unawares because that seems to violate some kind of basic sense of decency right right i think that's true and i would add those strategies frequently don't work very well and I think that is what struck me in this movie is that um, as they meet this first person who yeah. they end up killing, right. he exposes to them some of the anemic responses that they have to the world. They are having these dinners where they have conversation. Right. Um, those dinners ultimately end up into these murderous dinners. But you get the sense that originally these dinners were designed for dialogue where they could, you know, debate the merits of arguments about civil society. Right. Uh, but this uh, guest shows them that maybe their strategy is actually not all that effective. And maybe it's just really self-obsessed and self-righteous at the very end of the day. And they don't really have an answer to that, except that maybe we should seize power to the extent that we can. Right. I think the whole, the strategies and, and this, because they were so self-absorbed, like for me, this movie is also like, see, I told you depravity was real. Boom. Like, Calvin, <laughs> right, right. Calvin's got it right. Like this is real. <laughs> and so if they weren't so self-focused, right. Meaning if after dinner, right. They said, hey, let's take up a collection for veterans and go serve them. Like when because they they were talking in circles and not only were they unable to differentiate, but they were also divorced from the day to day grind of the humanity of others. Right. Of that who were not like them, meaning when you have to get down in the trenches and serve people and, you know, hand to mouth, right, where you're connecting with the humanity of somebody else who you might not agree with or who might not have the same experience than you are, then it's humbling. And there was just nothing about these young, these folk that was humble, like nothing. And actually everybody, now that's the one thing they had in common with all their dinner, dinner guests is everyone had some extreme, selfish, narcissistic, arrogant position where they could not humbly and openly you for the other side or see the other position. What do y'all make of the 
the theological imagery in the movie. I mean, obviously, we've got the Last Supper title, we've got the wine that is poisoned, we've got the Sistine Chapel creation of Adam that's painted on the ceiling. We've mm. got this kind of debate about praying before the meal. We've got even the tomatoes on the vines that are growing on top of the bodies in the back get kind of treated as fruit of Eden at a few points in the movie. So yeah, all of the uh, all of the names are apostles' names too. Right? Yeah. So like, how do you what do you make of the way in which the movie is reinterpreting or satirizing or playing with kind of Christian iconography? Like, how does that sit with you? I think that for those who are putting this movie together, that the to me, I think for them, the church is not a relevant voice in the conversation in terms of how to deal with the difficulty, the tension, the right versus the left, the us versus the them. And the one time they did did have a technical representative of the church, that person, you know, that perceived leadership was not a relevant voice in the conversation. And so I think they don't always find, they don't find us to be relevant. And I think sometimes we're not. Yeah. Do you think that that's common now? I mean, considering all of the political discussions that are going on, like all of the so-called dinners where, um, where people are talking politics, um, how often is the church represented well? And what's the diagnosis there? Is that our fault? I don't know that we will ever be, I don't know that the church will ever be publicly recognized as a relevant voice until people are faced with the crisis of their humanity. I feel like, I feel like we are just kind of quietly, I feel like relevant church and relevant Christianity is just always riding low key under the surface. Meaning when the person that thinks that we're irrelevant has a family member who's dying of cancer, we show up, right? Mm-hmm. When there's national disaster, it's Presbyterian disaster assistance, it's other Catholic charities, it's we just are quietly doing the work under the radar, we're quietly holding the hands, or, or, or even look at Charlottesville, right? Good clergy that we all know physically put their bodies in front of that park mm-hmm. in the face of a us versus them just quietly doing the work. And I think it takes crises and tragedy and being faced with our humanity for people to see where the church is quietly relevant and sometimes not so quietly. But I don't think that our public persona will ever, I don't think we will ever be perceived publicly, quote unquote, as relevant because it costs something to engage Christianity. Like you can, like even for them not to pray like that whole liberal group to not have any, nobody had any faith, anything, not Buddhism, Hinduism, a lot. They had nothing. <laughs> like, no, because I think faith requires something of you. So I think that we, I don't know that we'll ever be seen as publicly relevant until people are faced with their humanity. And then they're reminded that the church can be there for you. And that's the political danger of, of, of liberalism, which is it can devolve into self-righteousness, but it can also easily devolve, and I've seen this in too many churches to count, into a worse righteousness, which is to say, like, I know that I'm better than you right. because I believe these things. I know, like, yeah, we might have some shared common humanity, but um, on the latter out of this pit of depravity, I'm far higher than you are. And that makes me important, or that means you should listen to me. That there is um, a sort of uh, a self-obsession that's at the, that can be at the heart of liberalism, especially, especially as it understands itself in contrast to its conservative opponent. Right, but, but to your point, in the conservative world, you, like, like you said, you can be obsessed with your perceived righteousness. So both of these folks on the extreme, oh, that was the Ron Perlman line, right? He was like, the centrists make the decisions. <laughs> like, the, right. more extreme, the more extreme the right and left get, it's the moderates that are holding it together. And I was like, somebody say, Jesus, that, that's the line. That's the line in the movie, right? Oh, my gosh. That, yeah. So it's like there are dangers on either extreme to be either focused on be obsessed with yourself or to be obsessed with self-righteousness. 
And it seems like one of the things the film does is kind of expose the ways in which that extreme position kind of self-poisons over time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they, they, you know, they do eventually kind of get hoisted on their own patar by the, the Ron Perlman character at the end, but there is this kind of slow dissolving of it that happens in the buildup to that, where you, you see the characters who are processing the kind of emotions of this and all of these different ways, some of them healthy and some of them not very healthy. They, they're sniping with each other. They're uh, the, the, the bond is breaking down. Like yeah. it is a, it's, it's, it's kind of a suicide pact that they've agreed to. And it, and, uh-huh. and the Ron Perlman just kind of shows up and, and, and pushes them off a cliff that they've already been standing next to. Right. And I, I found that really striking because it says, this is not a, it's 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 not a a healthy thing for the body regardless to stand mm-hmm. at that edge. That's right. Yeah, especially in I mean, they toast after that first murder saying um to making the world a better place. Right. And then right. their world, whatever that house is, right? The house becomes the sort of the way that they uh stand in for community. Their community devolves it does not yeah. actually become a better place. It yeah. becomes a worse place, and they individually right. become worse people. Yeah, they just kind of they they're sinking they're sinking into it. They're they're dying with all of this self absorption and self righteousness. Right? It's like a liberal self righteousness. Like we're our thought is above the thought of the people who come around this table, and it kills them. Because if it didn't kill them. Through Ron Perlman giving them a taste of their own medicine, it would have killed them emotionally, mentally. You know, Courtney B. Vance's character just completely unravels and is really doing a lot of manipulation and mind control of the group. It's really, it was really scary stuff. Like what happens when we just get so self-focused and forget about the bigger picture? In no concept of the bigger picture at all. Well, I think this is a good transition for us to talk about the lectionary text and preaching a little bit. But first, we're going we're gonna to sell some magazines. Adam, sure. you want to sell some magazines? So we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing. Uh, the issue out right now is the fall books issue. Um, and these books issues that the, the Century puts out are always some of the best opportunities to find smart, powerful, thoughtful books in theology and ministry. It's very rare in um, in our line of work, that there's one place that you can go and hear about good theological books to read that might be helpful for for faith, for ministry, and for the work of the church. Um, and I'm I'm always interested in the books that show up uh, in the fall books, and I think they do have spring books as well. And they're they're generally relevant to our work. And in a time when it's hard to figure out when books are coming out. Um, I think this particular issue does a real service for the church. So go check out the fall books issue at the, um, at the Christian century, both online or subscribe. Um, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to the century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription for more information, information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. That's christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Matt, back to you. All right, let's talk about preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, so we're going to look at the lectionary passages for year A, the 19th Sunday of Ordinary Time, October 15th. It's a good week. We are still in Exodus as God threatens to kill the Hebrew people for making the golden calf. We got Psalm 23 shows up. We've got Paul's farewell in Philippians. And perhaps a bit too coincidentally, Jesus gives a parable about a wedding feast. So, Aisha, as you think about the Last Supper, what resonates for you for the preaching task for this coming week? I think the, um, the Exodus uh, 32 about all these idols, right? I'm always fascinated um, about the theme of idolatry in the scriptures and how that's kind of a big one, right? God's like, hey, just worship me. That's all you got to do. And it just seems like a common theme for the people of God to want to build and make idols. Like we cannot shape this thing. Um, I mean, you know, we get, we confess and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that this, this Exodus piece about when I think about uh, the last supper movie, um, there 
their way of thinking, their values, their standards became their idols and it killed them. And I just wonder what idols are people holding on to that will ultimately lead to the death of their souls, their marriages, their family. Like what is going on with folk that they are holding on to things that, that aren't to be worshiped. So whether it's power, whether it's money, whether it's prestige, whether it's self-righteousness, right? Um, I just think I would, if I were preaching and I were tact, you know, tastefully able to weave in this crazy movie <laughs> that I love so much, which I think I would be able to, um, I would really say like what, cause that was the main guest at the table was the worship of the self. And I think that um, we're just getting ourselves into a lot of trouble by making ourselves our own priority. And even all that they, you know, all that they, you know, their rings, like all, they're just putting all of this in, right? To make, to make this golden calf, which is horrible, right? So, um, so I just think, I think really looking at the, the ways in which idolatry, idolatry, excuse me, grips the people of God today. Yeah, especially in the movie. I mean, it's interesting. Your point is, is intriguing because the, you know, the ideology becomes the idolatry in this, yes. um, in this movie. And similarly, I think it's, we're, it's the ideologies too, that can become our idols that we, we serve those before we serve God. Um, yeah. We serve our theologies before we serve um, God. We're more interested mm. in our theologies being correct than mm. we are um, than being compassionate, like you were saying earlier. Um, I think that this, um, yeah, the the theme of idolatry in the Exodus passage is really interesting. Um, I also love that passage because I all I don't know. I empathize with the the Israelites, and so <laughs> tell me what you think about this. You know, because I I think. I put myself in their shoes and I'm just thinking, look. Help me, Jesus. So here's my case. Here's my yeah. case. So so they've been in bondage, right? And yeah. and I think we can safely assume that the monotheism that God is expecting of this new Israelite community is a relatively new idea to them. They've been in Egypt. They've been, they've been in the Egyptian way of looking at the world. They've been colonized and occupied in any number of different ways. And so now they pass through the Red Sea. They are their own people. And Moses goes up a mountain and says, I'll be back when I'll be back. Right. You know, and I wanna, they're like, I'm... they've been, they've been, they've been monotheistic for like three weeks at this point, you know? And there's part of them that's like, well, maybe we should try what we used to do. And here's, yeah. and here's the thing. I think Aaron ultimately is a good priest because sure. he listens to them. Like I, I want my ministers to listen to the people and their needs. Now, Aaron needs to have a little bit of his own differentiation. Um, <laughs> Like, I'm willing to admit this. And yet I look at Aaron as someone who's trying to do right. And no one knows if Moses is going to come back. Moses could have been eaten by a lion up on uh, up on the mountaintop. And they're just sitting down at the bottom and everyone's scared. And so I, I also am interested in the ways in which, like, the, the insecurity of our position huh. leads us to idolatry. Okay, I and want that, to... Yeah, okay. and that insecurity might be uh, self-made and or it might be a real social insecurity that's been pressed upon a, a group of people. And I think we need to be able to figure out how to deal with that insecurity as ministers in ways that are, um, aren't just totally permissive, but also listen closely to the anxiety of the people in front of us. Okay, I want to I push back on a few things with this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the same... Just like you said, they have been, you know, monotheistic for like three minutes, which is fine. But they also, just that language, right, where they walked through, they walked on dry ground, right, into their freedom. That means that they have had a supernatural experience with God that is not to be forgotten. They are no longer anybody's slaves. 
they're walking in a new freedom, right? And so that, I don't care if that's three weeks, three years, whatever, <laughs> like your three minutes, like when you have an encounter, that a supernatural encounter with God, right? That that, that pull you a little bit closer. So that's the first thing. The second, that's part of the draw, right? That when I have an intimate encounter with God, that's what I'm standing on so that when the temptation to connect to idolatry comes up, I have to stand on that experience and that encounter, right? Yeah, and the memory, right? The memory. And the memory, you do not forget. That's why you keep remembering. That's what a priest is supposed to do is to remind you, listen, he should have said, we need to worship. Now, I can't, I can't, like for me, Aaron needs a backbone for me, right? <laughs> because if somebody said to me, we need to have a session meeting without the pastor, I'm like, yo, because that's what that line is for me. Come make God's for us. So she, right. you want me to go against the book of order and the Bible? I'm not doing that today. So when they said, when he says to them, take off your gold rings and all that other kind of stuff, he should have said, we need to pray. There's mm -hmm. no prayer consultation of God from Aaron as the priest. So Good you point. can you can feel insecure when the people of God are whining, complaining, berating you. But if you don't go to that God who, with whom you've had a supernatural encounter, you got to pray first. So the part of me that I think also lets idolatry come in is when there's no consultation with God first. Lord, if Moses died that night, okay, Lord, what do we do? How do we live? Why don't we worship God first? Y'all, remember that? <laughs> That's the role of the priest, <laughs> right? So Aaron gets caught up because, I and, and I don't think it's the people, I think he wanted it too. He came up with the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, I think it's, it's really easy to go back to what's familiar. And that's another thing in this idolatry, monotheistic dialogue, is that God is asking us to step away from the familiar, which is completely relying on God for everything. And that is not familiar to us. Well, yeah, and the, the, the golden calf is fundamentally nostalgic too, right? I mean, it is, it is consistent with a mode of worship that they would have been experiencing oh, yeah. in Egypt oh, under yeah. Pharaoh. And so what they are doing is replicating prior modes of worship and servitude that are inconsistent with the kind of the transformative experience that they've had or this kind of new new place and new time into which they've been sent. So that like there's a there's a nostalgia there that like Adam I you you have a, ten, a usual allergy to nostalgia <laughs> and so I would have I would have imagined you to to kind of resonate with that a little differently I guess um and I I, I I pick it up in the film a little bit too I mean obviously we have the kind of Limbaugh character who is as as they invariably are kind of rooted in this um, in this kind of nostalgia for America past but you know the the liberals around the table in their own way are just as allergic to the concept of someone infringing on the sense of identity that they have, or even in their kind of, I mean, if you really wanted to push it, their kind of relentless obsession with this time travel hypothesis. Right. Like what would you do if you right. could go back instead of imagining what the tactics are and what the strategies are that let us move right. forward. Uh, that That's where I think to me, this, this, this kind of idolatry becomes fundamentally retrograde. I mean, I, I'm not, I want to go, I'm saying yes to all that, but I'm also going back and forth between the two of you. I don't want to <laughs> say that I don't have compassion because when that line, you know, I have seen these people, how stiff necked they are. Like I'm, I'm them, you know, yeah. I'm like, I'm them. Sure. I'm pulling off my rings and my earrings too. Like, yeah, child, I need something, you know, like yeah. something yeah. Yeah, <laughs> feel sure. better about this wilderness, whatever situation. So I think it's just a reminder of how frail we are at times and our yeah, weaknesses. Right. And so what's the balance between leadership and laity? How do we encourage one another? Um, I would have loved it if Aaron had said, you know what, we're going to just have some small group time. <laughs> we're gonna, like, why don't we talk about what would be nice? Like, let's imagine we made a golden calf. How would that make you feel? That's what I wanted Aaron to do. 
right? Right. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think similarly to the movie and to, like, this passage, I, in the least condescending way, I find these people pathetic in the sense that they, they solicit yeah. pathos. They, like, I, yeah. I hear them and, like, their voices sound suspiciously like my own when I become insecure and anxious about the world, when I'm looking for some leadership um, and I feel like, or I am the leader and everyone's looking to me saying like, okay, Adam, what are we going to do now? And I don't really have a good answer. And so what am I, what do I do? I like pull out something in my back pocket that worked at another church someplace else with a different group of people um, because I feel desperate. To, to have an answer rather than sort of sitting in my own insecurity saying, I don't know, let's wait about this. Let's consult God. Let's do yeah. the spiritually mature part of this. I, as a right. leader, I feel like Aaron is well-meaning in the way that I can often be well-meaning, but myopic in the same way that I can be myopic. I think those two words, anxiety and insecurity, what do the God do when we are anxious and insecure and looking for what to do next or while we are waiting what you know what would happen if you like you say if we sat in our insecurity and anxiety if we realize that God is right there in our midst with us and that there's like God will give us what we need to get through that particular insecurity or anxiety in the congregation or in the world like what would what would have been different for them if they sat if they cried out to God if they just sat in the ashes for a minute, you know? Yeah. Okay, we got to talk about the the wedding feast though. Y'all go first. <laughs> <laughs> because it's too it's too coincidental that Jesus uh, yeah. parable about the wedding feast and um, and encouraging everyone to like go out and find people who are going to come and then this one person shows up and he's not wearing the right clothes or something right you know and god's like all right you got to go you so get out of here um all right matt yeah matt you go off. first it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> i'm just i'm just thinking about the the kind of compare and contrast because we still have got psalm 23 hanging out here too and the um you, you set up table before me in the presence Ooh. of my enemies Right, which seems like a line that we should not overlook in this conversation, which is a little bit closer to home, I think, for what we want out of this movie, although the parable may be a little further away. Um, I, I, I don't have an easy answer for that uh, in terms of how this parable that I think as, as you know, quote-unquote, uh, good mainland progressive Christians, we want to be about like welcoming an invitation, but it doesn't entirely feel that way. It, uh, and, and, you know, it's one of those that I'd probably be like, you know, I'm going to preach Exodus. Like I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking Exodus is where this day is going. You think considering like we've had a 20 minute conversation about Exodus and we are like <laughs> tiptoeing up to the parable being like, what's going on here with you? Strange parable. We're tiptoeing up to it. I think, um, I mean, I think the psalm, right? The psalm gives us comfort, right? You know, we think about God setting a table, you know, you know, setting up a table for us in the presence of our enemies. I think my question to look at this preaching-wise is, are you willing to set a table for your enemies? And if they are at the table, how are you treating them? That's the that would be when I when I look at this movie that they set a table for their enemies and they killed them. And so what would it look like for how you invite your perceived enemy to the table, no matter what that looks like, what, what could change, what could change about how, how you live? If it's, it's like the, not to bring in other parables, but it's like the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? Like when you realize that you're forgiven, you can forgive others. When you realize that Christ has set a table before you and is with you in the presence of your own enemies, what is your what is your response to them? How are how are you? What's your hospitality? What's your openness? What's your compassion? What's your differentiation? What does that look like? And and you know, and Luke's version of this parable is so much more wide ranging, and it's so much easier, I think, for me to digest because it is about you know 
going into the <clears throat> into all of the streets and the lanes yeah. and the country roads and finding people who will come because every because you know the the rich people in the city don't have time and can't be bothered but we're going to find we're, we're going to find anybody anybody who wants to come will be welcome and open and this Matthew's version is so much more it's so much more interested in that many are called but few are yes. chosen line and uh, and 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 it gets at those kind of parts of Calvinism that make me feel a little sick to my stomach sometimes. Well, I think also with this parable, though, uh, as I think about the table in general, um, I think the liberal church, if we're talking about mm. progressive liberals versus conservatives, as the movie does, the liberal church loves to talk about like the table being for all, you know. They'll, they'll talk about their open table. They'll talk about how it's a place of hospitality. And, um, and on the one hand, they are willing to serve anybody. And yet, on the other hand, um, they're unwilling to move the table. They're unwilling to, like, change the liturgy. And it gets wow. to the heart of what I think, like, is very central to our theologies of, um, of communion, which is um, being both being a guest is vulnerable and being a host is vulnerable. And yeah. when I hear this, this parable and yeah. Jesus or the, the, the master in the parable casting someone out, I'm reminded that this is a vulnerable moment to be guest and to be host is insecure. It is. Yeah. Um, and this, this shows up as a sort of trope in literature all over the place, which is, yeah. I mean, basically Macbeth is about what it's like to be a guest and what it's like to be a host and what happens when you betray your role as guest and as host. Wow. Um, and like sometimes as a guest, you have a role that you have to play. And if you're unwilling to play it, then like you're too dangerous to have around. Wow. Um, and that's a good thing on the one hand. And that's uh, like, at least for the first century, who were a group of people who, for whom the feast, the, the, the communion table was a very private place. Um, on the other hand, I think that the modern church, especially the liberal church, doesn't think more intentionally about how it can be, how its hosting is a particular invitation to certain guests and also a way to bar other guests. So for instance, um, I know a lot of, um, uh, in Boston, I did a lot of work with the unhoused population and they feel um, utterly excluded from communion tables in churches. Wow. Right? Because the church isn't built for them. There are all sorts of unspoken rules that are that are already there that they're never going to fulfill, right? Like, you know, shower before you come to church. Well, right. they don't they don't get to do that. And they feel those um they feel the ways in which the hosts of these tables have set up pro um barriers for their entry. And so rather than thinking about how do we build tables that are for everyone, I'm more interested in trying to figure out how we build tables that are for someone, you know, like for specific people. And, and I wonder if there's something of that logic that's going on in this parable. I'm really sympathetic with your kind of diagnosis of the modern church, but I, I feel like we're not fully embracing the sharp edge that's of right. the parable. I think we get off on the wrong foot when we uh, too easily align what is presented as a metaphor for the kingdom of heaven here with our sense of how right. churches behave and how we lay out a table. Uh, I think, that, you know, for for Jesus to set this up by saying that this is a parable about the kingdom yeah. of heaven automatically puts us in the position of being the guest. And I think if we overthink it in terms of church hospitality and church openness, then we're kind of inv inviting ourselves to uh, relate to this story from the position of the wrong character. I and so f f for me, the problem here is showing up as the person who doesn't have the yes. robe or the person who isn't right and the risk that God is going to turn me away. And I, it doesn't square with what I believe from so many other parts of the scriptural witness. But to me, that's where 
this is this parable has its has it has its teeth most righteous can, I, 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 can I jump in for two seconds yeah just um my spiritual gift is overthinking things Matt so <laughs> uh so thanks <laughs> go ahead Aisha yeah sure. we want to affirm that because sometimes you need that um but I do think that uh, the more learned and progressive we are, um, that we do s- stray away from the hard sayings of scripture. Um, I, I love this idea of, right, we're, we're the guests. And am I, to me, this feels really in line with, you know, take up your cross and follow me you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to gain a life, you got to lose it. You'll have to reject mother and father. Like this is all that language. And it's no different where are, if you're coming to a wedding, do you understand what this now means? Right? So if Christ has invited me to come to the party and I don't understand that there is a way to come to the party. And I think, I don't remember, we were talking about this kind of offline a little bit that um, in, the, in, the, in the sense, when I think about Paul's language, you know, clothe yourselves with compassion and like, how, how are you coming dressed to this party, right? That the who, who you are, like this isn't, you can't wear your jeans and your Timberlands and a hoodie. That's not this kind of party, right? <laughs> so whatever this wedding robe looks like to me, is this idea that th- this is a this is a whole other way of living, and so so this language of why you know why why did you come in here without a wedding robe? And then so for me it's twelve and fourteen, right? I mean, yeah, thirteen is tough because it gets kicked out of the party, but that many are called, but few are chosen. This just this idea that we need to let people know that this life of faith is not for the faint of heart, right? It's not, it's not easy. It's not simple. You better, you know, be prepared for what God is asking of you when you, when you come into this thing. And I, and I will say that I think that having, you know, I didn't go to, I mean, I did not grow up Presbyterian. Right. And I am black. (laughs) Therefore there's some like ecumenical Baptocostal Presby stuff all, (laughs) all in me. And so from, I think from more of like a black church vantage point, if God tells you to come a particular way, right, whether, whether that robe is one of humility, whether that robe is one of confession, whether that robe is one of, you know, submitting, whatever that robe is, right, you better come, you come correct. And so there's this, I think there's, a, I think to me, I see this as a posture, right, that this guest was invited to the party and did not come with the right posture. And I wish that we would say a little bit more about that. Right. Well, so I, that's, this, this is getting me thinking because I think my, I, my, my picture now of this parable is that this invitation comes with a robe, right. Mm. And, and everyone is supposed to put this robe on, come on and then. then they need to walk from their house to the wedding. Mama. And they're wearing this robe and everyone sees them wearing this robe and they sort of stand out and they look goofy and they yeah. like, and, um, and there's someone who's like, you know, I don't really want to stand out that much. And then they get to the wedding right. and they're not wearing the robe. And yes. to some extent, I think that this is a, a, a way to think about what entry into the kingdom of God requires for us as people of faith which is at sometimes you walk through the city streets standing out and it makes you insecure and it makes you noticeable. Um, but sometimes that's necessary. Um, because, uh, it's not just that you were chosen. So, you know, if we're going to live into a reformed heritage, uh, it's not just that you, you learn to put on the robe of righteousness or something like that. It's that the robe of righteousness is put on you. And now you got to walk around in the world with it. Um, and if you continue to put other clothes on over it, then in some ways you've misunderstood the thing that you've been handed to wear. All right, Adam, it is time for our last segment, but that means we got to say goodbye to Aisha. Aisha, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us today and chat about this movie. Thanks for inviting us to rewatch it. I really Yay, enjoyed the chance. You're welcome. 
Yeah, it's great. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. This week, independent of each other, Matt and I were thinking about the same topic. So today we're going to do one mega postlude. Matt, what do you got? So, you know, the the church has kind of hymns for all different seasons, right? Like you got your Advent hymns, you got your Christmas hymns, you got your Easter hymns. We kind of, there's a seasonality to the songs that we sing, but there are like places in the calendar year that for me aren't marked by Christian hymns. They're marked by other kinds of music. And the most striking one for me is that like, as this is a child of the Mid-Atlantic and and the Northeast and that kind of those kind of weather patterns, there's this like one day at the very beginning of spring, like the first real day of spring, when you're like you're sitting in a classroom or an office room and you look outside and it's just like you know that it's 74 degrees and that like the the world is coming back to life a little bit. And like imaginatively, you like you're 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 pulling the top down and heading out on the road in some convertible, you're like feeling the air rush across you. Maybe you even do it. Like maybe you have a chance to run outside and be in like the new life of the world. And you are like, you're like out on the highway driving down. And for me, Adam, like that, that's Tom Petty music day. <laughs> like that's the soundtrack of that day. It's a, uh, it's full moon fever or it's wildflowers or it's like even back to his oldest catalog. It's like, Tom Petty is the best driving music, but its best stuff was always about that sense of of freedom and escape and wanderlust that is marked by like the new life. And and I gotta tell you, like I'm really sad that he's gone. Like I know this week has been full of all kinds of bad news, and there's tons of horrible stuff in the world. But like I'm still really sad about Tom Petty. And he he doesn't have the stature of David Bowie or Prince. I get that, and. And I get that, like a thirty-eight-year-old white guy waxing on about Tom Petty is super predictable. Two, but for me personally, white guys waxing on yeah, 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 yeah. But like, it hurts a lot. And so I've been in the Petty catalog all week. Uh, I've been some of the deep cuts, and I've been a lot in like my personal one of my personal favorites of his, which is from his nineteen ninety-nine album Echo, which is like this kind of album after he'd come through his divorce and it's kind of his darkest place in some ways but it was a good funereal music for tom petty this week so i've been been listening to the opening track which is room at the top let's let's hear a few bars of it i've got a room at the top of the world tonight i can see So, I mean, likewise, I love Tom Petty, and um, I do this thing in bars with ministers, which uh, is fun. And there are two important questions that I ask ministers. Um, the first is, like, if you were uh, preaching and, like, a baseball player had walk-up music, what would your walk-up music be? Um, we've, yeah, we've, we've had that we've conversation, had that conversation here the on the show. Yeah, yeah. question that I ask people is, if... You, as a preacher, were a band. What band would you be? And uh, and I think this silly little uh, game gets to the heart of sort of like, what do you want to sound like? What is what is what is your niche? What is your uh, and who do you want to be? Who do you want to play to? Um, a lot of ministers pick you too. I don't know why. Um, I. I think that's boring, but my ambivalence to you two is well documented on this show. Um, and my stock answer has has been Wilco over the years. Um, but like you, I've been listening to Tom Petty all week, and I really think he's a great answer to this. He's um, he's smart. He his his music drives in the way that it like it has a propulsion forward. Um, and he's got this strange voice and he looks weird and 
Um, <laughs> he's like that blonde, stringy hair. Uh, and if you listen to his voice on a few of his songs, you would think that he's aping Dylan, right? Like that he has this like Dylan-esque type of voice. But then he actually can yeah. sing notes that Dylan only dreams about. This like these high tenor notes that um, that are full of pathos and um, and so much emotion and feeling. Uh, and then he was just so damn cool, like so seemingly comfortable in his own skin. I don't know if you saw the Defiant Ones, which was the new HBO doc about Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. Yeah. Um, the whole documentary is littered with really cool musicians. Um, so when I was watching that, I was reminded about how like just self-assured he was as an artist. And this led him to like make strange songs um, to like gather back Americana for wild flowers sort of late in his career to like have these propulsive uh, driving songs um, like refugee or running down a drain. So uh, I like you have been back in his catalog and realizing like it is full of hits. None of them are fancy. All of them are under four minutes and, um, and, many of them rarely put a note wrong um, and are ultra accessible. And if I'm thinking about what a preacher is like, it, those are, those are pretty good characteristics and qualities that I'd like to assume. Yeah. He has a remarkable capacity to make it look easy. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, it's so simple. His lyrics are just killer. Like, uh, uh, you know, just iconically, like she was an American girl raised on promises. Like it's eight words and it's like a novel, right? It's like the character is iconic. It's nostalgic. It's crystal clear. And it's like got this weird, dark tinge to it raised on promises. It's like an eight words. And I, I long to be that kind of preacher. Uh, I suspect that like, I've always got a hundred words when 25 would do nicely. <laughs> so maybe on my best days, I'm Dylan instead of being petty. <laughs> But I don't know. I I feel like for me, Petty is less a model for preaching than he is as a model for 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 hymnody. Like the songs are so iconic. I won't back down as a hymn. You know, even the losers as a hymn. Free fallen is like the hymn, and it, it may not be his best song, but it's his most. It, it's his most vivid it's like these best hymns it's not just about the musical quality of it or even the lyrical quality but it just stirs something universal like i dare you to put on free fallen i'm gonna pl i'll play a few bars i'm gonna dare you to put it on and not immediately imagine yourself inside a convertible So I've had this this art theory uh, with writers and with musicians um, where early art from great artists has lots of words. And then periodically, as artists mature, they use less and less words. Uh, fewer um, and fewer and words, Adam, is what you're going for. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Fewer and fewer words. Um, and... Uh, and what's interesting about Petty is that he seemed to have figured that out almost immediately. Yeah. That um, there is no stuck inside of Memphis with the, or stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. Right. There's no Dylan, like, super wordiness. There's no early Bruce Springsteen where there's seven million words to a song. Right. Um, it's all just, like, crystallized, as you said. Yeah. Um, just in already. And so it's almost as he sort of, like, came as a fully formed artist and that's so rare and interesting yeah and that's part of why i think it feels like hymnody to me because it's not about the discursive language it's about the economy of it and the way in which it kind of puts us in the basic rhythms of ourselves anyway that's our Tom Petty appreciation and i appreciate him dearly i appreciate you too adam but we are at the end of our show one more thanks to Aisha for hanging out with us today. 
Next episode, Adam, we're going to be talking with writer Jeff Chu, who's taken some time out to chat with us. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. Every little bit helps other people find the show. Special thanks, as usual, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Mostowski, the sound wizard who's doing a lot for us right now. Our new music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him. He can be found DJing across the country as DJ Pizzeria. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.